0: According to the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, roughly 15%, or 5 million people, have anemia of chronic kidney disease, or CKD. Anemia of CKD is associated with quicker disease progression, higher rates of hospitalization, major cardiovascular events, and mortality. In this presentation, pharmacist Mark Layden reviews common treatments of anemia and CKD highlights the significance of hypoxia inducible factor and discusses a recently approved novel class of medications for anemia treatment.
1: I want you to picture yourself standing at the edge of a vast bustling city. As you observe the people passing by, one in every seven individual catches your attention. They appear pale, fatigued, and breathless with every step. Despite the vibrant surrounding, their energy seems to be drained and their bodies are silently battling a condition that affects millions worldwide. This bad blood condition is anemia. And today we will dive deeper into one specific form, anemia secondary to chronic kidney disease or CKD. We will take a look at what we've done and review current guidelines, revisiting what we know and anticipation of upcoming updates, introduce a new class of agents that is emerging in practice. As we explore the often overlooked world of anemia, we will unravel the pathophysiology underlying this condition. We will then navigate the diverse approaches using using managing anemia among dialysis-dependent patients. Finally, we will deep dive into a new class of therapeutics that holds promise for our patients with anemia and discuss potential place in therapy. Understanding the intricate functions of a healthy kidney is crucial. It plays a vital role in regulating electrolyte and water balance, maintaining bone health, eliminating metabolic waste, producing hormones, and controlling blood pressure and acid-base balance. However, in kidney disease, these functions become disrupted, causing electrolyte abnormalities, uremia, metabolic acidosis, secondary hypertension, and hormone imbalances. Kidney disease can be staged based on glomerular filtration rate, ranging from stage 1, which is normal function, to stage 5, kidney failure requiring dialysis. As kidney function declines in CKD, the prevalence of anemia rises, reaching up to 50% in non-dialysis patients and 90% in dialysis-dependent patients. Anemia is defined as hemoglobin less than 13 in males and less than 12 in females. It can be classified as mild, moderate, severe, or life-threatening based on the hemoglobin levels. Common signs and symptoms include fatigue, pale skin, dizziness, shortness of breath, tachycardia, and or irregular heartbeats. Anemia secondary to CKD is associated with significant mortality and morbidity. Numerous studies have consistently demonstrated that anemia is an independent risk factor for increased mortality in CKD patients. It contributes to the progression of cardiovascular diseases, leading to a higher risk of heart failure, myocardial infarction, and stroke, which are the leading causes of death among CKD patients. Anemia also profoundly impacts the quality of life for individuals with CKD, impairing daily activities, limiting social interactions, and reducing overall well-being. Anemia-related complications frequently result in increased hospitalization, causing the healthcare sector billions of dollars. Severe anemia in CKD may require regular transfusion, which come with their own risk, such as transfusion reaction, infection, and iron overload. Furthermore, anemia can accelerate the progression of CKD by causing renal damage and tissue hypoxia. So the pathophysiology of anemia and CKD involves impaired erythropoietin or EPO production and dysregulation of hepcidin, a hormone that is responsible for iron homeostasis. As As kidney function decline, EPO production decreases, leading to the reduced stimulation of red blood cell production and the development of anemia. Hepcidin, which is primarily synthesized by the liver and are elevated in CKD due to risk factors uh, like inflammation and impaired kidney function, resulting in a decreased iron absorption and release, further exacerbating anemia. In summary, factors such as inflammation, nutritional deficiencies, and bone marrow dysfunction all contribute to anemia in CKD. Which brings us to our first Poll Everywhere question. So please get out your phones or your app, text mail Rx to 22333. Uh, our first question is, which of the following is true regarding anemia in chronic kidney disease? Is it A, increased hepcidin level results in higher absorption of iron, Is it B, chronic inflammation leads to an increase in EPO production? Is it C, chronic inflammation leads to increased hepcidin levels? Or is it D, red blood cell production is independent of hepcidin levels? All right, as the answers roll in, uh, I will agree with the majority. The answer should be C, chronic inflammation leads to increased hepcidin levels. A is incorrect because increased hepcidin results in a lower absorption of iron. B is incorrect because chronic inflammation leads to a decrease in EPO production. And D is incorrect because red blood cell production is indirectly dependent on hepcidin levels. As per the 2012 uh, Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes, or the KDGO guidelines, the treatment goals of anemia are to raise hemoglobin levels, alleviate anemia-related symptoms, and reduce the necessity for transfusion. Our treatment approach involves assessing the underlying causes of anemia, addressing any deficiencies, and considering the use of erythropoietin stimulating agents, or ESA, as a therapeutic trial. Or to correct iron, there is a buffet of iron supplementation options available. KDEGO guidelines recommend iron supplementation for patients with TSAT less than 20% and serum ferritin less than 100 nanograms per mil. TSAT reflects the percentage of iron saturated carriers or transferrin, while ferritin represents intracellular iron stores. In end stage renal disease or ESRD patients, IV iron is also favored due to poor GI absorption with oral. It enables efficient and rapid replenishment of iron stores, leading to faster correction of anemia. IV administration also allows for higher doses, addressing severe anemia or significant iron deficiency. In addition, IV iron can reduce the need for higher ESA doses, potentially minimizing ESA related adverse effects. Vitamin deficiencies can also cause anemia, so vitamin B12 is necessary for red blood cell synthesis, and folate is essential for DNA production and cell division. Supplementation with dialovite, which contains three milligrams of folic acid and one milligram of vitamin B12, help restore normal levels of these vitamins. In patients with CKD who are not on dialysis, the KDGO guidelines recommend initiating ESA to maintain hemoglobin levels between 10 and 12 grams per deciliter. This recommendation is based on evidence showing improved outcomes and quality of life within this target range. However, in patients with end-stage renal disease who require dialysis, the guidelines suggest avoiding hemoglobin levels less than 9 This recommendation is primarily based on studies that have shown increased cardiovascular risk associated with low hemoglobin levels in the patient population, as mentioned at the beginning of the presentation. The guideline also recommends a conservative hemoglobin target of nine to 11. The concern is that targeting a higher hemoglobin levels with ESA in end stage renal disease patients may increase the risk of adverse cardiovascular events. In order to set the stage up for later in this presentation, I want to dive deeper into our ESA therapy. There are three main ESA agents, so epoetin alpha or EPO, darbepoetin alpha or DEPO, and methoxypegylated epoetin beta or PEGEPO. The half-life of these ESAs can vary depending on the specific agent and its formulation. While subcutaneous and IV administration routes have different pharmacokinetic properties, IV administration typically results in a more rapid onset of action and higher peak concentration compared to subcutaneous administration. However, both routes ultimately lead to similar overall therapeutic effect over time. So, dosing is then just standardized for ease and patient compliance. When talking about ESA, I think it's important to review why we don't target normal hemoglobin levels, but instead have a conservative hemoglobin target range of 9 to 11. This brings us to the TREAT trial, which was published in 2009. It's a multi-centered, double-blind, parallel-group, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. The trial included 4,038 patients with diabetes CKD, anemia, and low TSAT not undergoing dialysis. Investigators include patients with uncontrolled hypertension, previous kidney transplant, and active cancer. Patients were randomized to receive depot to target a normal hemoglobin level of 13 grams per deciliter versus placebo to target a hemoglobin um, greater than 9. A rescue therapy were provided for the placebo group if their hemoglobin um, fell less than 9. Two primary endpoints were the composite outcome of death, or CV event, and death, or end-stage renal disease. Important secondary endpoints included time to death, time from cardiovascular causes, and changes in patient-reported outcomes at week 25 measured using the functional assessment of cancer therapy fatigue, or the FACT fatigue score, which ranged from 0 to 52, with higher scores indicating less fatigue. Uh, With this score, so an increase in three or more points is considered to be clinically meaningful. Median follow-up duration was about 29 months. Um, There were no differences in primary outcome. Key secondary outcomes found an increased incidence of stroke almost doubled, uh, typically doubled, 5% versus 2.5% with a hazard ratio of 1.92 in the higher hemoglobin target group. There was a modest... Degree of improvement in the fact in the mean fact score in the depot group compared to the placebo group occurring in 54.7% of the depot group versus 49.5% in the placebo group. The trial found that targeting a higher hemoglobin level with depot did not provide additional clinical benefit in terms of reducing the risk of cardiovascular event. Just the opposite. Um, there was an increase in adverse cardiovascular event in the higher hemoglobin group. So based on these findings, the FDA revised the labeling for ESAs in 2011. It got rid of the previous hemoglobin target of 10 to 12. The label now warns of serious adverse cardiovascular reactions and stroke when ESA are administered to target a hemoglobin level of greater than 11. On the label, it currently states, um, currently no trial has identified a hemoglobin target level ESA dose or dosing strategy that does not decrease these risks and now includes a more conservative target hemoglobin range of 9 to 11 in CKD patients and really focusing on, hemoglo- on transfusion avoidance. Since the TREAT trial, the management of anemia and CKD have focused on maintaining hemoglobin within the recommended target range while minimizing the risk for adverse events. Given the increased risk of targeting normal hemoglobin levels, there begs a the question, is one ESA safer than another? Briefly, since the TREAT trial and the FDA label change, an observational registry-based retrospective cohort study published in 2015 that compared patients who received DePO versus EPO at US Hemodialysis Center. The investigators looked at all-cause mortality and stroke. Another study published in 2019 by Locatelli and colleagues conducted a randomized open-label non-inferiority trial. Investigators included patients with anemia of CKD and randomized participants into two groups, uh, PEG-EPO versus conventional ther- agents such as EPO and DEPO. Our last study, published in 2021 by Caraboyas and colleagues, conducted an observational cohort study using international data from dialysis outcomes and practice pattern studies, or DOPS, which is a prospective cohort of in-center hemodialysis patients from 2009 to 2018 from 10 countries across three regions, North America, Japan, and Europe. All patients prescribed an ESA at DOPS enrollment were included in the study. The investigators compared long-acting ESA such as DEPO versus short-acting ESA such as EPO. The primary outcome was time-to-event of all-cause mortality. So all three trials found minimal difference in mortality rates among hemodialysis patients being prescribed different ESAs, suggesting no increased mortality risk for long versus short-acting ESA. So in summary, there are no clinical preference in choosing between ESA products, and it further reinforces the KDGO guidelines of a conservative hemoglobin target. So this brings us to our next audience-based question, So TS is a 67-year-old male with CKD stage 5 on dialysis Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Past medical history includes hypertension and hyperlipidemia. TS complains of ongoing fatigue and decreasing ability to complete activities of daily living in previous months. So hemoglobin is 10.8, NCV 60, ferritin is 68, TSAT is 15%. And then vitamin B12, 500, and folate is five with reference ranges on your right. What would you recommend to treat this patient for anemia? Is it A, start depot at 0.4 mics per kilo every week? Is it B, start oral ferrous sulfate and depot 0.4 mics per kilo every week? Or C, start oral ferrous sulfate by itself? Or is it D, start IV iron? So got quite a bit of answers, uh, but I will agree with the majority. Uh, the answer would be D, start IV iron. Main thing to note with this case are the low T-sat and ferritin. A is incorrect uh, since we are at the conservative hemoglobin target of 9 to 11, and we will want to avoid uh, raising hemoglobin greater than 11 with the initiation of ESA. B and C are incorrect because in patients with end-stage renal disease, oral iron supplementation is not preferred due to poor GI absorption. And we would, want to, we would not want to trial both uh, iron and ESA at the same time per KDIGO guidelines. If it was a non-dialysis patient uh, with a lower hemoglobin level, we would trial an oral iron first for a few months before considering ESA therapy. So now that we reviewed how we manage the bad blood, Let's speak now on the discovery of the hypoxia-inducible factor, or HIF. It's a fascinating story that highlights the remarkable progress in our understanding of cellular responses to low oxygen levels. So the journey begins in the 1950s, when researchers first observed that the body adapts to oxygen deprivation through the production of EPO. However, the molecular mechanism underlying this response remained a mystery for several decades. It wasn't until the early 1990s that the groundbreaking works of Dr. Greg Semenza, Peter Ratcliffe, and William Kalin shed light on the molecular basis of oxygen sensing. Their pioneering research laid the foundation for the discovery of HIF. And so in 1992, Dr. Semenza's laboratory made a significant breakthrough. They identified a specific DNA sequence called the hypoxia response element, or HRE, that regulated the expression of the EPO gene in response to low oxygen level. This finding suggested the existence of a protein factor that binds to HRE and controls EPO production, later found to be the HIF-alpha-beta complex. However, at this time, the identity of this factor remained elusive. In 1995, the path of these two research groups converged so Dr. Radcliffe and Dr. Kalin independently identified a protein complex, which was later named proleohydroxylase domain that interacted with the von Hippel-Lindau gene protein under normal oxygen condition. They found that this complex was responsible for tagging another protein known as the HIF-1-alpha or hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha for degradation. In addition, factor-inhibiting HIF, or FIH, is an enzyme that acts as a regulatory checkpoint that ensures HIF activity is tightly controlled in the presence of normal oxygen level. And in the presence of hypoxia, the degradation of HIF-1-alpha is inhibited, allowing it to accumulate and activate the expression of target genes, including EPO. Further studies in subsequent years revealed that HIF was not only involved in regulating EPO, but also influenced a variety of genes related to angiogenesis, metabolism, cell survival, and other processes that help cells adapt to hypoxic conditions. For their groundbreaking work on HIF, Semenza, Radcliffe, and Kalen were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2019. So their discoveries opened up new avenues for research and the development of therapeutic strategies in targeting HIF in various diseases, including anemia, cancer, and ischemic disorder. So this led to the development of hypoxia-inducible factor proteohydroxylase inhibitors, or hif which reversibly inhibits the proteohydroxylase domain and increases gene transcription of EPO. So there are currently a few HIFI on the international market. This includes Roxatostat, Badadostat, and enarodustat. The Protostat will be the main focus of today's presentation since this is currently the only HIFI approved in the US just earlier this year. Notably, the Protostat is part of the Ascend program funded by GlaxoSmithKline which is comprised of five phase three studies assessing the efficacy and safety of the PROTESTAT for treatment of anemia due to CKD across the CKD disease course. So today we will talk about two of the five trials. The main trial that led to the FDA approval was the ASCEND-D trial. So this trial was a randomized, open-label, non-inferiority trial that included adults with CKD undergoing dialysis for at least 90 days and had received an ESA for at least six weeks, with hemoglobin between eight to 12. Participants were required to have normal ferritin and TSAT. and then patients with malignancy, uncontrolled hypertension, or had cocomitant use of strong CYP2C8 inhibitors like gemfibrozil were excluded. Participants were randomized to receive either oral protostat at four to 12 milligrams based on their current ESA dose equivalent or an IV EPO for hemodialysis or subcutaneous depot among those receiving peritoneal dialysis. Primary non-inferiority outcomes were the mean change in the hemoglobin level from baseline to weeks 28 through 52, and the first occurrence of major adverse cardio event, or MACE, which included a composite of death from any cause, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke non-inferior margin for the mean hemoglobin change was negative 0.75 grams per deciliter, and the non-inferior margin of 1.25 for MACE. Baseline demographics were well-matched across the group, so median age between the groups were 58, with up to 88.5% of participants were on hemodialysis. Mean baseline hemoglobin was 10.4, and the median follow-up for MACE was 2.5 years. Both primary outcomes met non-inferiority. So for primary outcomes, they found a mean adjusted difference of 0.18 in hemoglobin change. First occurrence of MACE was 25.2% in the deprotestat group versus 26.7% in the control group with a hazard ratio of 0.93. Secondary outcomes, which tested for superiority, were not significantly different. Uh, between the two groups for MACE or thrombotic event, with a hazard ratio of 0.88. MACE or hospitalization for heart failure was similar with a hazard ratio of 0.97. And then I wanted to point out that, although it was not significant, we could observe a small decrease in IV iron dose requirement for the Protostat group with a mean adjusted difference of negative nine milligrams which is unique as this class of medication um, has been seen to affect iron uptake, mobilization, and transport in other literature. Limitation includes the open label design, which could lead to bias of reported adverse drug reactions. This trial was also not designed to characterize the full long-term risk, which is still a gap in our literature for these agents. The authors conclude that the protostat was non inferior inferior to ESA regarding change in hemoglobin and cardiovascular outcome. And so, due to the results of this trial, the FDA granted the protostat approval on February 1st of this year and is indicated for patients with anemia to CKD due to CKD for adults who have been receiving dialysis for at least four months. Since this trial also showed that the protostat was not better or worse then standard of care, it, and it worked on increasing EPO levels. It inherited the same black box warning as our ESAs. The ASCEND-ND trial is another trial with similar design, but this time looking at CKD stages three to five, who are not currently receiving dialysis or scheduled to start dialysis within 90 days, and who have met the hemoglobin criteria of eight to 11, and had normal ferritin and TSAT. Patients who were on dialysis, kidney transplant, history of malignancy within the past two years before screening through randomization or currently receiving treatment for cancer and use of strong CYP2CA inhibitors or inducers like gemfibrazole or rifampin were excluded. Investigators randomized participants to receive the protostat starting dose between one and four milligrams according to the baseline hemoglobin level if patients was ESA-naive. And then, according to the ESA dose, if uh, patients was receiving an ESA prior, and then the dose step change um, range from anywhere from one to twenty four milligrams, versus participants who were randomized to depot uh, sub Q every one to four weeks based on cumulative four week dosing requirements. Primary non inferiority outcomes were the mean change in hemoglobin levels from baseline to weeks twenty eight through fifty two. And then the first occurrence of MACE. Change in hemoglobin had the same non-inferior margin of negative 0.75 grams per deciliter and non-inferior margin of 1.25 for the first occurrence of MACE. Baseline demographics were also well-balanced in this trial, but I wanted to note that history of cancer was slightly higher in the protostat group. For primary outcomes, mean hemoglobin change from baseline to week 28 through 52 had a mean adjusted difference of 0.08 and met non inferiority margin. First occurrence of MACE had a hazard ratio of 1.03 with the confidence interval within the non inferiority margin. Secondary outcomes were tested for superiority as well, like our previous trial. There were no differences in secondary outcomes between the protostat and darbopouetin alpha with MACE or thrombotic event. MACE or hospitalization for heart failure were also similar with a hazard ratio of 1.09. When looking at progression of CKD, which included composite of 40% decrease in estimated GFR, progression to dialysis, or progression to kidney transplantation, there was no differences seen, but notably the proteostatic group shown an increase in total iron binding capacity Decrease in ferritin and a decrease in hepcidin, which has since prompted further studies to look into the HIFI class and impact on iron transport. So, limitations again with this trial is uh, similar to our SND, with the open label design leading to potential bias and a reported adverse drug reaction. And then that trial also not being designed to characterize full long term risk. One thing should be noted, however, is in this trial, cancer related death or tumor progression or recurrence was higher in the protostat group along with esophageal and gas, or gastric erosion. So these adverse events of special interest are undergoing further investigation. Authors then concluded the protostat had similar efficacy as a uh, depot on hemoglobin change and cardiovascular safety outcomes. And currently the protostat is not FDA approved for the treatment of non-dialysis patients. With the recent approval, so I would like to highlight some dosing pearls of the protostat. And so we can break it down into two groups, patients switching from ESA and ESA naive. For patients switching to ESA, it would be based on each ESA dose with the the protostat starting from four to 12 milligrams and then titrating based on responses with hemoglobin. For ESA naive, We would dose based on current hemoglobin levels ranging from one to four milligrams and then titrating based on response with hemoglobin levels. For monitoring, we want to get baseline iron studies and LFTs, so we want to ensure we replenish the iron stores before starting therapy, similar to ESAs. So upon initiation, we will want to check hemoglobin every two weeks for the first month and then every four weeks thereafter. If hemoglobin increases by more than one over two weeks or more than two grams per deciliter over four weeks, then we will need to decrease the dose. Dose adjustment should be a single step therapy every four weeks up to a maximum of four, 24 milligrams daily. If there are no meaningful hemoglobin change after 24 weeks with dose escalation, then, discontinuation of, then discontinued therapy and then look for alternative causes of anemia. In hepatic impairment with child PU class B, we would reduce starting dose in half. It is not recommended in severe hepatic impairment with child PU class C. Since the protostat is also metabolized by CYP2C8, notable drug interactions focuses on CYP2C8 uh, inhibitors like gemfibrozil and are contraindicated for patients looking to start uh, the protostat. For moderate CYP2C8 inhibitors like clopidogrel, we want to reduce the protostat dose by 50%. For CYP2C8 inducers like rifampin, we want to monitor the hemoglobin and adjust the doses as indicated due to increased clearance of the protostat. So now let's compare the ESA and our new agent. So notable similarities between the HIFI and ESAs are they increase the hemoglobin with the same monitoring requirements. They decrease the need for blood transfusion. Both are indicated for dialysis-dependent patients, and both carry the black box warning for increased risk of MACE. ESA are available as injections, IV, or sub-Q, and have been shown to require increased exogenous iron repletion. It also is indicated in non-dialysis-dependent and kidney transplant patients. And then dose adjustments are typically between 25 to 50%, depending on the hemoglobin change. On the flip side, hip are oral tablets. Um, Iron requirements should really be a question mark um, since the Ascend ND shown an increase in total iron binding capacity, decreased hepsidin. And although not significant, required less exogenous iron administration compared to ESA in our Ascend D. So in theory, by its physiological effect on hepatitis and increased mobilization of iron stores, it may reduce exogenous iron requirements compared to ESA in the long term. So I would put a question mark next to it because the jury is still out. Another difference in HIFI is that dose adjustments are stepwise. So based on the next tablet strength and then any notable drug interactions question becomes, where is the role of HIFI? Should everyone currently on dialysis be swapped to an oral tablet for an ease of administration? So currently, the KDGO anemia guidelines are being updated and will include recommendations for HIFI, so we'll await that. Where I see HIFI playing a role is based on four factors with patient consideration. CKD staging, home versus in-center dialysis, costs, and patient preference. I see potential benefit for patients with CKD stage three through four, so non-dialysis patients, as a great oral alternative option to help in preventing transfusion and achieving hemoglobin targets. In patients with home dialysis, compliance may improve with an oral tablet that they can take at home rather than having to come into a dialysis center to receive injection or having to administer subcutaneous injections themselves. Cost will also play a major role for patients. Unfortunately, given this medication has just been recently approved, I do not have um, exact cost data, but insurance price coverage and price tag will ultimately decide if these agents will be utilized. Finally, oral is a lot easier and much more comfortable for majority of patients to tolerate, but will be based on their preferences. Ultimately, I don't foresee much change in current practice right now with our current data available to us. So that brings us to our last and final uh, Poll Everywhere question. So AM is a 53-year-old male with CKD stage five on hemodialysis Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for six months. Past medical history includes hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and STEMI status post-PCI three months ago on clopidogrel and aspirin. Weekly EPO dose is 1,500 units. Hemoglobin is 10.2 MCV-110 Ferritin 165, t 40%, and then vitamin b 12 and folate F5 with reference was range on your right. So the question is, what would you recommend for this patient to treat the anemia? Is it A, continue EPO three times weekly, B, switch to the protostat and an equivalent dose, or C, increase the EPO dose, or D, switch to the protostat and at an increased dose? All right, well, it looks like the answers are in. Actually, not what I was expecting at all, uh, so that's on me on how I phrase this question. Um, I was going to have A as continue EPO three times weekly, although you can make an argument for both uh, for increasing the EPO dose because the Hemoglobin is 10.2, so it's within that 9 to 11 range. You can make an argument either way whether or not you want to push it. Um, For me, I would choose a probably more conservative route and just continue the EPO three times weekly since we are at that uh, hemoglobin target range of 9 to 11. B is incorrect because the patient is on clopidogrel and then we would want to reduce the dose in half if indicated, and then D... Uh, is incorrect because we will want to switch the protostat to the equivalent dose first if there was no drug-drug interactions or hepatic impairment, and then titrate based on hemoglobin response every four weeks. So in conclusion, ongoing optimization of anemia management remains necessary. Uh, The protostat is not worse than standard of care with conventional ESAs. And then with current literature and ongoing trial, we can anticipate a niche place in therapy with the HIFI. And then finally, long-term safety data is anticipated as this molecular biological target is still being studied in other fields.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.